in your Bibles to chapter 14. We're going to be looking at that this morning. But even in the midst of what we're going to see today, because as you continue on in the next few chapters of Revelation, it's like everything is even amping up to a greater degree. The chapter that we're in is kind of, kind of an overview. We're still in that parathetical section of Scripture, that interlude section of Scripture, where, where John and his vision is kind of getting in more detail, but it's, not, it's, it's, it's still general. And most of chapter 14 is talking about the last three and a half years of Revelation. And really, I believe, quite frankly, a lot of it's in the last, last, last part of those last three and a half years of the tribulation. Uh, hopefully, we're all aware that there is a time that's called the tribulation. It's seven years. You can read about it in many different places in the scripture. Daniel gives us a lot of information. And there's always a lot of symbolism. Uh, so sometimes, as I've said before, we don't always agree on what the symbols represent, and that's usually okay, unless we get carried away in our imaginations too far. But what usually we don't need to use our imagination on is the result of whatever those symbols represent. And again, that's what I want to continue to stress, and as I review, that we are looking at what's taking place. Some of the symbolism has to be at least addressed, but what's really significant is what is happening irregardless of what the symbols truly represent. Because frankly, we don't know all the time. Men disagree on many, many things here. In chapter 13, if you recall two weeks ago, we were introduced at that time to referred to the dragon. And the dragon, it said in chapter 13, was standing on the shore, the sandy shore of the sea. And even there's a picture of the shifting sands of this dragon. And the dragon represented Satan, the devil. And as he's standing on that shore, we were introduced to the beast from the sea. And the beast from the sea is the Antichrist. The Antichrist. The devil and the Antichrist are not the same thing. The Antichrist is going to be a person who is probably totally possessed by Satan. But he's led by Satan and he's doing the work of Satan. And then we were introduced to who was called the beast from the earth who we'll find out a little later is called the false prophet. So in the end times, we're going to see this unholy trinity, if you would. Satan is a counterfeiter. He's a mimicker. He, he's not that creative. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, it's almost as if he says, we're going to have our own little trinity here. It's going to be me, Satan, the God that's to be worshipped. It's going to be the Antichrist, who is basically like his son, and then there is going to be the false prophet. And the three of them are going to be critical in developing this end-time government, end-time false religion, and they are going to control all of the end-time commerce because of the mark of the beast. And we leave that section of Scripture, and, and if you read it, and there was a verse in, in chapter 13, verse 7, I just want to read to us again, because it can almost say, whoa, who's going to really win? It says this, it was, it was given power, the Antichrist is who is being talked about, was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. If you think about that for a little while, two, two questions might come to mind. One, does the church get wiped out? Is there anybody left on the earth at this time 
that's still a follower of Jesus Christ? Chapter 14, the first few verses are going to answer that right away. And the second question might be, what happens to the beast? What happens to those who follow the beast? What happens to those that take the mark of the beast? And when you're in chapter 14, verse 6 to the end of the chapter gives us a total overview of what's going to happen. And then when we get into chapter 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, it gets into much more detail of what's taking place. And frankly, it's horrible. Chapter 14 is leading right up to the opening of the seven bowls of God's judgment. You may recall the seven seals, that the only one worthy to open them was the Lamb of God, Jesus. And then out of the seventh seal came the seven trumpets. And we went through the seven trumpets up to the sixth trumpet. And the seventh trumpet is opened, and out of the seventh trumpet comes what are called the seven bowls of God's judgment, His wrath. And when we get to the bowls, I believe the timing is like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, quickly. It's like an onslaught of God's final judgment. And chapter 14 is like the prelude right up to that. So John in this vision is kind of getting an overview of what's taking place, and then we're going to go into the detail. So don't be confused by that. Remember what an interlude or a parenthetical section is. It's kind of giving us a little bit of detail, helping to get the picture clearer, but sometimes it can be confusing because it's not chronological. Okay? Chapter 14 is preparing the way for the climatic events that are about to happen. We're going to look at a few of the verses in a group and go through this chapter, and this time I am going to put most of the scriptures on the screen. I think most of them are in the NIV if you're wondering what, what translation. But I want to look at the first five verses. Remembering the scene in chapter 13, the Satan, the dragon, the beast, the Antichrist, the other beast, the false prophet standing on the shore of the sea. And in chapter 14 it starts out, Then I looked, this is John in his vision, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They followed the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So the answer to the question from chapter 13, is there anyone that survives on the earth? The answer is yes. We know for certain that there's 144,000 that we read about in chapter 7. They were sealed by God. They were Jewish people. I believe there were 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, as we talked about. And they were sealed. There was a mark on their forehead of some sort. Here it seems to be they're clarifying that it's the name of God or the name of His Son or both. And I'll tell you up front, not all theologians agree that it's the same 144,000. I personally believe it's pretty clear that it is the, first, the same 144,000 that we read about. 
There is also disagreement about where they are seeing this picture, this scene, Jesus standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000. Some believe that it's symbolic that they're standing in a heavenly realm on this Mount Zion in heaven. Others believe it's Mount Zion located on earth outside of Jerusalem. I personally have that persuasion because we are told in Scripture from what we've studied before, the 144,000 were marked and protected. They were going to be protected all through the tribulation. So if they were in heaven, they must have been killed or there's a second rapture that we don't know about. So I believe they are still on earth and I believe the significance of this as we look at the scene wherever they are, and I believe it clearly is on the earth, but we need to look at this and say it's a picture for us of the power of God preserving those that he seals, that God protecting those that he seals, the triumph of those that he seals with his protection. And to me that's so significant. Because if you are a believer, you have been sealed. There's a scripture that I want to share in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. And it says this, You were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. To me, this is significant because I believe once that we are truly born again, we are truly saved, we have truly accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into us at that instant and we are sealed by God with the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance. This is just another one of the many scriptures that I stand on when I, do not, when I say I do not believe a true Christian can lose their salvation. We have been sealed, preserved, just as the 144,000 have been sealed and preserved. And I acknowledge that others disagree with that position. So you need to decide for yourselves. That, but that's one of the reasons I believe once I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, I will be protected by the Holy Spirit there is a guarantee put in place that no matter what comes, the Holy Spirit is going to hold me, seal me, protect me. Oh, I may wander a long ways away. It may not look good at times in my life, but I believe that I have been sealed by God, guaranteeing my inheritance as a child of God. So I believe as we look at Revelation chapter 14, the first five verses, we see that God preserves His people. Now, how many others there are? We don't know. We do know that the Antichrist, the, the false prophet, driven by Satan himself, the persecution is overwhelming and millions are killed for their faith. But we also know it's the greatest revival probably in all of history that takes place through those 144,000. Do I believe there will be others on earth at that time? Yes, I do. Because I believe Scripture shows us when Jesus comes back, He is coming back, and there are some of His children there. They're not all dead or already all in heaven. There are some there. And when we look at these, the description of these people, their character, I think we can learn a lot from that. One, 
It says they did not defile themselves with women or the woman. Uh, they were virgins from one perspective. Uh, and that may very well be true, but there is also a disagreement on that position. Some believe that the woman that could defile them was this governmental religious system of the day. You can look at it both ways, either way, but really what it's showing us is they kept themselves pure. Whether it's a spiritual picture of resisting Satan, resisting the Antichrist, resisting the world at that time, or if they actually were so committed in this horrible time that they did not even go, they stayed virgins, they were chaste as a commitment to God. Either way, works fine for me. And it says they speak the truth. Now even in our world today, the world does not want to hear the truth from the Word of God. We'd rather hear lies. We'd rather hear our ears tickled. We'd rather compromise truth because it's not politically correct, because we're going to get persecuted. The Bible is crystal clear on so many of the social things that are taking place in our culture today that if you speak the truth, you're a bigot, you're intolerant, you're racist, you can go right on down the line for speaking the truth. And sometimes that's caused because we forget that we're supposed to speak the truth, how? In love. As Christians, speaking the truth in love. You know, th we, we need to be God's voice led by the Holy Spirit, but we need to speak truth in love. And it says here, they spoke the truth, this 144,000, one of their character traits was no matter how bad the persecution got, no matter what kind of pressure the culture was putting on them. And imagine that. I mean, they were being commanded to worship idols of the Antichrist. They were commanding to bow down to the Antichrist. They were to take the mark of the beast if they wanted to go to the grocery store and buy groceries. All of these things are contrary to truth. But it says these, these 144,000 always spoke the truth. And the third character trait we see there, that they were blameless before God. Now, I can't hardly imagine that blameless before God. In a sense, you and I are blameless before God because of the blood of Christ. We are blameless before God because of that. But I think it goes beyond that here. They were living examples of holy living as best they possibly could. And I think that's an attribute that we as Christians should certainly carry. Striving and desiring to the best of our ability, surrender to the Holy Spirit to be examples of holy living. And once again, if you think about what time's taking place here, what things are taking place here in the tribulation, the last part of tribulation, it would have been unbelievably hard. The pressure would have been unbearable, but yet they did not waver. We're facing greater and greater pressures in our own culture today. And more and more people give in. And it, I acknowledge it's easy to do. It's easy to compromise our testimony, our witness. People are watching. People are watching. It's not about works. It's about being a testimony and a witness for Christ, trying to live a holy life to bring glory to God. Jesus himself in his teaching in Luke told his disciples, he said to them in Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross every single day. Holy living. Let's go on in Revelation chapter four, 14, verse 6. 
Now he says, I see another angel. And if you'll recall earlier, there was angels flying around every now and then. And here we're going to see it. And it can get a little confusing because here it says another angel. And then it says there's a second angel and a third angel. I believe what we're looking at here is a series of three angels. In, in verse 6 it says, I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. To every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And it was kind of from that scripture that I took the title of my message this morning, Last Chance. It's the last chance. The grace of God, even in the end, towards the very end of the seven years of tribulation, He even has an angel proclaiming this truth to anybody who would listen. Anybody who was left that didn't take the mark of the beast, He's giving him one more chance, even at this late stage, to, to surrender, to repent, to worship the one true God. Even at this late time, fear God. Give Him glory. Worship Him. The eternal gospel. What is the eternal gospel? Well, when we usually hear the phrase gospel or eternal gospel, the, what does the word gospel mean? It's pretty simple, right? Good news. Good news. The good news. And we see in the Scripture, we see different references to the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in all cases, it is the good news. And the good news is there is salvation through Christ. So this last chance is still being proclaimed and being made available to them. And it says, bow down, worship Him, give Him glory. And it's interesting to me because at the time of the Antichrist, the time of the false prophet, you're not going to have a choice. They're going to say, you bow down and worship me or worship the idol of me or you're going to be killed. It's simple. Here, it's free will. Bow down. Worship me, God says. Worship me. But it's also interesting to me that even though now it is voluntary, there is going to come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is coming a day that Satan himself, the Antichrist himself, the false prophet, and everybody that had the mark of the beast is going to have to be forced to bow down before God and acknowledge who He really, really is. As long as there's still time, we still have the choice to make. Who will we worship? Who will we bow down to? And all that will bow down and all that will get saved at this time in the, the tribulation they're going to get saved the same way we all did. Assuming you've done that. We acknowledge who Jesus Christ is. We are saved by grace. Grace was extended to us. First to hear the message, to receive the message, and accept and believe the message. By faith. And they'll be saved the same way. By grace. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And now it gets ugly. Starting in verse 8 through verse 12, it's, it's, it's more than unpleasant. The second angel follows and says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Some translations say the passion 
of the immorality. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead on his hand or on his hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. If there's any of you that were like me, you've maybe said or you've heard people say, we're going to party in hell like we've never partied before. That is so wrong. And it's such a deception. This is a partial description of what hell is going to be like. The torment that's going to be experienced by all of those. When it declares first in those scriptures, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Fallen, fallen is repeated because there's no doubt, it's a certainty that Babylon is going to fall. Remember, this is an overview and we're going to actually read about the fall of Babylon as we progress a little further into the book of Revelation. Babylon could represent ancient Babylon, a city that would be rebuilt, where they would reign and rule from, but more likely it represents the form of government that's in place, the false religion that's in place, the false commerce because of the mark that's in place. Either way, it's being made clear, it's coming down. It's coming down, Satan's going to lose, the Antichrist is going to lose, the beast, the false prophet, they're all going to lose it's coming down and then it says it's going to force this this babylon this system if you would it's going to force people to drink the wrath of god force it how first of all it will force you to take the mark of the beast to worship the antichrist and once that's done the decision's been made there is no second chance. The wrath. Drink the fullness of the fury of the wrath of God from the cup. And it makes reference to the wine. Now if you attend here regularly, you've heard me every year, the last few years, I, I share a message about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he's on his knees praying and sweating great drops of blood, and his prayer, the request in his prayer, Father, if it be your will, Remove this cup from me. And if you go through Scripture, the cup that I believe Jesus was referring to is the cup of God's wrath. And here we see for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who are going to reject Christ. Today we don't have an Antichrist, but there's an Antichrist spirit in the world. If we reject Christ, Yet today, and we die without ever accepting him, we are in this group that is going to drink of the cup of the fullness of his fury, the wrath of God. And this is what Jesus took on our behalf. This wrath that all that reject Christ are destined to receive. And this is one of those areas where sometimes because people are compassionate, we go to this, God is a God of love, and he is. But he's also a just God. And we hear people say things like, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? 
I hope you've heard this before, but I want to reiterate it today. God sends no one to hell. People choose to go there. It tells us in Scripture that the gospel will be proclaimed across the earth. People will be held accountable to what they do with whatever has been revealed to them about God. And if they reject or accept, they are making the choice. We have no excuse. God's not going to send anybody here to hell unless you choose to go there by rejecting Christ as your Lord and Savior. Babylon, drinking of the fullness of His wrath, full strength. Now, I, I'm making a little of assumption here, but full strength. I do know that would mean it's not diluted. It's not been watered down. And I think what's really missing, what it's not been diluted with at all, what is not being watering down the wrath of God at all, is His grace. It's gone. It's gone. The fullness of His wrath, undiluted, poured out upon those who reject Christ. Tormented in fire and brimstone. The torment is real. The pain is real. The agony is real. And it tells us it's going to go on forever and ever. And there will be no rest, night or day. And then it says this, and these words I've not really paid attention to before. This will happen in the presence of the angels and the Lamb. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Does that mean that the angels and Jesus are there when the condemned are condemned and cast into hell? Or does it mean that they are somehow able to observe what's taking place? I don't know. I do know His justice will be present. His grace and mercy will not. It will only add to the torment of those who have rejected Christ. So when we look at this small section of Scripture, it should scare us. And I don't mean scare us to accepting Christ, except that would be okay if that's what it takes. But it should scare us to know that this is what's going to happen to our friends, our family members, acquaintances that do not accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It should motivate us to share the good news of the gospel to all that we could come in contact with. Using wisdom, led by the Holy Spirit, and always in love. But it should stir that evangelistic thing that's supposed to be in every single one of us to share the good news of the gospel of Christ. Verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Something you might miss in just casual reading of it. So far, the angels have been proclaiming all this stuff, but now we hear a voice from heaven, as if it's directly from God Himself. And I believe encouraging those that are still on the earth at this time. Encouraging them to hang on. Hang in there. But notice, blessed are those who die. They are going to be killed and martyred for Christ. Any of those who proclaim Jesus and do not renounce it, are going to, if they're caught, they're going to be killed. 
And he's saying, blessed are you who die for hanging on to the faith in me, trusting in me. And then he says, here's two blessings for you. One, you're going to cease from all labor, toil, trouble. I mean, we could look at this and grab the scripture that says, you know, one day we're going to all be in heaven where there is no more pain, there is no more suffering, there is no more angry anger, there is no more anguish, worry, depression. None of that. None of that. It'll be gone. For those that reject Christ, it will go on forever and ever and ever. And it says your works, your labors will go with you. I believe this is part of that teaching that we see in Scripture that all that we do for Christ, led by the Holy Spirit, we will receive a just reward. So God's encouraging the people as this voice from heaven comes. He's encouraging the people that are hanging on to their faith in spite of all the persecution, in spite of all the millions who have already been killed and martyred before them. He's saying, blessed are you. You're going to be blessed even as you die in your death. You're going to spend eternity with me where there will be no more anguish of any kind and you will receive the rewards, your just rewards for all that you've done in obedience to the Holy Spirit. In verses 14 through 20, I want to go ahead and read them quickly. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated in the cloud was one like a son of man, which is usually how Jesus is referred to. With a crown of gold. We never see a crown of gold on an angel, so I believe this is Jesus. And a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. And then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle, gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered in the grapes, threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia, or 200 miles. When you read that, and you're reading about ripeness and fruit and a harvest, you might make the mistake of thinking somehow or other the righteous are being harvested. I don't believe that's the case here at all. I believe what we see happening here is two separate harvests of the unrighteous. Of the unrighteous. Those righteous that are still alive when Jesus comes back at the end are going to rule and reign with him. The Son of Man in this dual harvest reaps first. The harvest is ripe. And we might miss this, but the word ripe there really implies Judgment is long overdue. In other words, when the ripeness is here, it's like a fruit, a grape. Let's use a grape. Being we're talking about wine, a grape hangs on the vine too long. What happens? It begins to dry and wither, and it's worthless. That's the picture here. It's time for judgment. It's ripe. It's withered. 
this whole system on the earth that man has tried to create of government and false religion, it's time for it to be fully judged. The hour to reap has come. And it replies, this judgment is long overdue. And God's coming with the sickle. The earth has become ripe with evil. The cluster of grapes from the earth are man's efforts. And God says, it's time. Judgment has come. He has been patient and long-suffering, and it's now time. And the earth will be harvested. Some of you may be familiar with Dr. Charles Ryrie, the Ryrie Study Bible. He put it this way in reference to this section of Scripture. It says, the picture here is that all the false religion of man is fully ripe and ready for harvest. Thus the harvest is ready because man in his own efforts, apart from the life of God, has fully developed an apostate religious system and it's going to be harvested now. And then it's thrown into the wine press of God. And you'll read, we, will, we will read more about this in the coming chapters, but really what's being referred to, you may have heard of as the Battle of Armageddon. This is what's being referred to. The armies of the world are going to gather and they're going to attack. They're going to try to wipe out. It's a war between Jesus Christ and the armies of the world. And we'll get a better description of the valley, but there is a valley that runs almost 200 miles in length. It may be hyperbole with the blood coming up to the bridles of a horse, but I think if it is hyperbole, it's telling you this is what it's going to look like. It is going to be the most gruesome slaughter ever takes place. All the armies of the earth attacking from the north, Jesus Christ. And he is victorious. He wins. In Joel, one of the Old Testament prophets, there's a scripture, and I just throw this out there because it's so interesting to me. Joel wrote this approximately 800 years before Christ. And now in this vision that John is getting from God, listen to the similarities. In Joel chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, it says this, Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the wine press is full and the vats are overflowing. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of the decision. Those that are in the valley of decision at this time, it's too late. Their decision's already been made. Anybody who's taken the mark of the beast, the decision's been made. The good news is while we're still here on this earth, you and I living here, we have opportunity to make a decision. And the decision, do we want to be the fruit of the vine that's going to bring forth fruit for the kingdom of God? Or are we going to be of the fruit of the earth, which is the fruit of Satan, that's going to get thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God? We still have a choice. If you've not made that choice, no choice is a choice of rejecting Christ. Don't wait. Anything can happen. There comes a time that we all have to make this decision. There's a scripture that's very familiar to many of us here in Joshua. Joshua at a time in the face of enemies and idolatry all around him as he was leading God's people wrote these words in Joshua chapter 24. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, 
Then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's a choice that we all have. Same one Joshua had. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your patience and long-suffering. I thank you that you have held back the fullness of your wrath and your mercy and your grace. I thank you for giving and offering salvation through Jesus Christ to all who will receive it. And I pray, God, if there is anybody here who has not accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, you would give them the grace even today to accept that gift of salvation. Father, we know it's your heart that none should ever perish. But God, we know from your word that many, many will. Lord, I pray that we would be stirred in our hearts to share the good news of the gospel with those that may not know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Father, we do all these things, we pray all these things, we ask all these things for your glory and for your honor, and we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.